you know, you always go into these things not knowing what level of strength you have. But, you know, you put one foot in front of the other. It's, an, it's a faith-based act. You pray that God will give you just as much as you can actually tolerate and not overwhelm you. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Martha Hennessy is a 65-year-old Vermont grandmother of eight, a retired occupational therapist, and a federal prisoner. She is in jail, along with six other pacifists, for breaking into a Georgia submarine base in 2018, spilling blood and spray-painting anti-war slogans to protest the threat of nuclear weapons. The group is known as the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. The name refers to the text of the prophet Isaiah, who said that swords shall be beaten into plowshares. Hennessy is the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, the legendary co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, which is committed to nonviolence and working for the poor. Pope Francis has cited Day as a, quote, great American, and the Vatican has given her the title Servant of God, the first step towards sainthood. Hennessy is completing a 10-month jail sentence. She is at a facility in Manchester, New Hampshire, run by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. She said that as a result of speaking to the media, she accepted the risk that her sentence might be extended. Our conversation took place as she did her daily permitted walk. Martha Hennessy, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me, David. I wonder if we could start by just tell me where you're speaking to me from. Um, Elm Street in Manchester, New Hampshire, where I am staying at a halfway house. I arrived here May 26th. And what is this halfway house and why are you there? I am under the custody of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And I just came out of Danbury Women's Camp um, on May 26th after spending five months there. I self-reported December 14th, and now I have to spend either one month or two months or three months here. It's not clear to me yet how long they're going to keep me. And they do make money off of keeping people at the halfway houses. But, you know, it's a re-entry program. There are... are some services, but mostly they want the residents to work and pay a certain percentage of their wages to the house. But that is actually on hold now because of COVID. And are you having to work while you're there? Uh, Not yet. I was in quarantine the first 10 days, and I am 65 years old. I worked as an occupational therapist for 30 years. And after I retired, I just simply did volunteer work without wages, and that's what I intend to do here. And what are the conditions of your uh, confinement at this halfway house? Are you you're allowed to make phone calls, obviously, because that's how we're talking, but what are the other restrictions on you? I have a 5 o'clock curfew. I have to get permission to go out three days in advance fill out an itinerary. I'm only allowed outdoors to take this community walk with the designated path, and I only have one hour. And I had to get permission to attend Mass on Sunday, and they won't let me attend any other Masses except one a week. And 
the space inside is rather limited. Um, not a lot of places to go to have a phone conversation. So you're you're to, you have to walk while talking to me. Yes, I am on my feet. Okay. Um, well, let's back up to talk about the action that put you in jail. What was it that you were arrested for? Um, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the the plowshares action that you participated in. Yes, I'm part of the King's Day Plowshares 7 on April 4, 2018, the 50th anniversary of the state killing of Martin Luther King Jr. We walked on to King's Day Naval Submarine Base where they housed the Trident nuclear submarine weapons system. And in a, the tradition of the plowshares, we for blood, we posted an indictment. I left the book by Dan Ellsberg, The Doomsday Machine, at the door of the administrative building. And we hung banners, the ultimate logic of genocide, of racism is genocide, the ultimate logic of Trident is on the side. And our charges were conspiracy, um, destruction of governmental property, deprivation of naval property, and trespass. And I was given 10-month sentence. And you've served five months of that. I served two months down in Georgia in a county jail in 2018, and now five months in Danbury, and the last three months, halfway house, but I'm really hoping to get home confinement because my family needs my labor. <laughs> um. Well, say a little bit about that. The this, um, you know, many people protest, but direct action such as you do is the, you know, the highest risk of all. It is involves the greatest sacrifice, and as you say, it involves sacrifice for your family. Why do you engage in direct action protests like this? Well, this is the first one I've ever done like this, and it'll no doubt be my last. <laughs> Um, you know, my other arrests were related to um, protesting Guantanamo and torture down in Washington, D.C. from 2007 to 2015 or so, and also protesting weaponized drones coming out of Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York. But this flashing action was, you know, definitely a different level of standing up and raising one's voice and I did it because I guess I was ready to do it. Um, I was 62 at the time of the action. I'm 37 months into the whole business of it, not counting the time spent before the action, trying to prepare. Um, I guess it was my calling. I don't know. So this is the first time you've done direct action? No. Um, I've been arrested at the Hancock Air Base. I've been arrested in Washington, D.C., you know, protesting. But, you know, this is very different because of going on to a U.S. Um, military base. They don't like that. What made you decide this was the moment? And, and also say something about the, uh, the Plowshares movement and the significance of pouring blood, which is common to many of the Plowshares actions. Yes, the Plowshares movement began in um, 1980 with uh, Philip 
fathers, Philip and Dan Berrigan, um, protesting at King of Prussia GE plant. Um, and there have been probably over 100 such actions. I think ours was around 100 in 2018. And the pouring of blood, well, it comes from the Old Testament. Um, we talk about, um, we call the plowshares movement because of uh, citing Isaiah 2-4, um, we shall turn our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and nations shall study war no more. And the pouring of blood is an act of atonement, of sacrifice, of contrition, of we, are, we, we do not want any more innocent blood spilled. Um, we are willing to pour our own blood to protect the innocent. And there are other aspects of the pouring of blood, sacramental, sacramentality of them, um, just to try and make real and evident what is not real. I mean, these weapons exist. And we have used them once in our history, um, but we want to really point out the reality of their existence and being placed on hair trigger alert. So, just what, manifesting. What led you the in 2018 um, to do this kind of protest, breaking into a, a base, um, which, as you say, was the first time you had uh, broken onto a an army ba- a military base. Well, I like to use the term we walked on. We didn't break in. Language is everything. (laughs) Um, The technicalities, the spirit of the law, you know, that's what we're getting hung for is breaking in. Um, But But, but you you cut a fence to to get in, right? Yes. One of us cut the padlock, a padlock on a gate. Okay. Um, And we chose the Trident weapon system because... um, it's the sea-based leg of the triad of our nuclear arsenal, and these submarines are prowling the seas 24-7, and, and they can launch a missile within 15 minutes. It will reach a target anywhere on Earth, and the Trident weapon system has the capacity to kill the world's population four times over. And we didn't think the United States military had any right to plan and set up and intend to do such a thing. So, um, again, getting back to your own decision to kind of uh, escalate your own activism, um, what was it about 2018 and what you were feeling that led you to want to, you know, take part in in this kind of action where you entered the base? Well, the context, yeah, of course. The context being the presidency of Donald Trump, um, and I believe that he had already done in the Iran nuclear agreement at that point in time. I could be wrong in my sequence, but then he went on to um, pull out of the uh, Treaty on the Ballistic Missiles, uh, IMF Treaty. Um, so, I mean, we are in times now of great danger of uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Science um, runs a doomsday clock, and right now it's 100 seconds to midnight, and that's the closest it's ever been in our nuclear history. And, you know, things, there are many hot wars around the world. I mean, Pope Francis calls it, you know, an ongoing World War III. Um, So it was time. It was time. The last action was in 
2012, where they went into the Oak Ridge, Tennessee, plutonium storage place. Um, so you mentioned so that know. that you uh, you don't think you're going to be doing this again. Um, what is causing you to feel that? Um, my stamina, my health, my age, my family. Um, you know, I haven't quite finished this one yet. And so I just can't imagine contemplating doing it again. Um, Father Steve Kelly, a Jesuit, who is one of our seven, he, um, this is maybe his fifth plowshares action. He is currently on the lamb underground. And, you know, he can do it his way and I can do it my way. And we all just bring our little bit to the table and offer what we can. What has it meant for your family in Vermont for you to be away? Um, our daughter lives right next door, so I do a lot of babysitting. And um, this time of the year, it's gardening, and we raise probably 80% of our own food. My husband is 70 years old. He needs my help. Um, my little granddaughter was very disappointed. When we came to the halfway house, I thought I was continuing on to home, but that was not the case. So she was crying when she heard that I wasn't coming back when grandpa came home without me. I also do um, volunteer work for the past 10 years at Mary House Catholic Worker in uh, lower Manhattan. And they always need the labor of the volunteer work there. I cook, I clean, I serve on the soup line, help organize donations, you know, share of myself with the homeless women. So there's much work to be done and I'm being prevented from doing it, but that's okay. Now is a time of quiet and contemplation and preparing for whatever. How do you explain to your granddaughter why you do what you do and why you're in jail? Well, that particular grandchild is only three. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I have eight grandchildren, um, 15, 14, 13, I have explained nothing to them. Um, they're, um, the two oldest ones are my non-bio grandkids. They live in Denver. I haven't had any conversation with them about this. Um, I would say that my nine-year-old grandson is the only one who has really picked up on what's happening. And he's questioning. And, you know, I don't know how my son and daughters feel about me talking to their kids about nuclear bombs. Um, you know, I grew up with a acute awareness. Um, we had we had to do duck and cover in elementary school. My kids were rather unaware, other than you know what I say and what my grandmother said. Um, and of course, my grandchildren. It's just not been. It's you know, it's the it's the beast hidden in plain sight for all of us culturally. So that's a difficult conversation to have with young children. And I must say, I probably have tried to avoid it. Hmm. just at at this point in their lives. Pope Francis has called your grandmother, Dorothy Day, a great American, and the Vatican calls her a servant of God, which is a step towards sainthood. Tell us who Dorothy Day, your grandmother, was. Uh, She was born in 1897. She died in 1980 when I was 25 years old. She um, hung out in uh, the Lower East Side, and she was familiar with characters such as Eugene O'Neill and others, and so she was part of that socialist movement um, in her late teens, early 20s. She was also a journalist. Her father and her brothers were journalists, and she converted to Catholicism. She came from an Episcopalian background, 
and she was baptized after giving birth to my mother, Tamar, and the Catholic worker movement. She started with a French peasant named Peter Morin in 1933, and they have a newspaper that continues to be in publication trying to address the issues of our times relating to racism, violence, injustice, capitalism. So she's very revered by those who actually know who she is. You know, we know of Dorothy Day by, you know, the she's something of a, a you know, a, a legend, a mythic figure. But who was she as a person to you? What was she like? Oh, she was my granny. Well, I'm number seven of nine kids. My mother had nine children. Um, and he was very dedicated to us. She was, you know, a single working mother. When my mother was in her childhood, she had to work very hard. She was very busy, but she would take time out to come and visit us and stay with us in Vermont. She was very gentle. She was very tall. Uh, she admonished my older sisters probably more harshly than she admonished me by the time I was in my late teens and early 20s doing the kinds of things that she did at that age. <laughs> she was very tolerant. She was very loving. She, you know, showed my example. You know, she gave me the book by John Hershey um, called Hiroshima. You know, she led me in a way that was very quiet, very quiet. Hmm. And she... David, what time is it? It is now 8.28. Okay, I have to call in now to the halfway house. Okay. At this point, Hennessy had to end our call. She called back after she had contacted the halfway house where she is incarcerated. Hi, Martha. Hi. Sorry, it took me a minute there. That's okay. I'm glad you're back. Um, it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Oh, the technology, the restrictions that I'm under, the it's just all very stressful. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not straightforward. Yeah. Is the stress different than what you expected? No, not necessarily, but it's, um, you know, you always go into these things not knowing what level of strength you have. Um, but, you know, you put one foot in front of the other. It's, an, it's a faith-based act. Um, you pray that God will give you just as much as you can actually tolerate and not overwhelm you. So I'm doing okay. <laughs> um, we left off talking about your grandmother, Dorothy Day, and who she was as a person. Um, she moved, when did she move to Vermont? She never did. Um, I was born on Staten Island, 1955. And then my family moved to Vermont in 1957. Dorothy was born in Brooklyn. Tamar was born in Bellevue. I was born in Staten Island. I grew up in Vermont. But Dorothy, you know, she was in San Francisco during the earthquake as a young child, then to Chicago, and then back to New York as a 19-year-old. And she was there the rest of her life. So who led? It was really your mother, Tamar, who uh moved to Vermont. Not uh, Dorothy Day was not in Vermont. She came and visited us very frequently, but no, David and Tamar, my parents, moved us to Vermont in 1957. Why Vermont? What brought them here? Oh, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, 
they were they lived in West Virginia, they lived in Pennsylvania. Um, Vermont was wild and green. My father was Irish. He thought maybe Vermont would be a lot like Ireland, hilly and green in the summertime. Um, and they were kind of back to the landers. And my father really had no skills for that, but my mother was very talented in growing things. And they wanted the good life. And maybe she, you know, my sister Mary was born on the Peter Warren farm in Staten Island in 1951. And so, you know, my parents lived at the Catholic worker and then had their own house when I was born. But maybe they needed more elbow room to, you know, get away from Dorothy's big, big presence. But, you know, my mother actually really missed being away from the Catholic worker. It was like moving to Siberia for her. <laughs> hmm. Is it uh, is there a, a sense of responsibility or even burden being the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, this figure who is likely to become a saint? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I spent twenty five years not engaging at all, raising my kids, not engaging in the Catholic worker or the Catholic Church, or you know, I was arrested here in Manchester, New Hampshire. In 1979, protesting Seabrook nuclear power plant. So here we are, um, full circle. Um, but, you know, there's just this nagging, you know, being hounded, being hounded by God, having seeds planted in my childhood. That sort of was a sprout when I was 50 and my kids were done with college. Hmm. So you travel back to the Catholic Worker House in New York City regularly. Uh, talk about the work that you do there. We're on 3rd Street between 2nd uh, and 3rd Avenue, Mary House. Um, my, my grandmother died there at the house in 1980. My mother was with her. We still have her room there. Um, I sleep um, in another room. I get up in the morning when I'm on the house, I cook enough food for the 20 or so people in the house and the 40 to 50 or so women who come in to be fed. Um, I answer the phone, I answer the door, you know, with help from others in the house. We have donations, we have a clothing room that has to be cleaned constantly. You know, I do the same things that I do as a mother and a wife, pretty much. What do you learn from the homeless women who you work with? That they are Christ. <laughs> that they are human beings in need, and I can share with them. That um, they are the castaways of our capitalist culture. You know, they are the most vulnerable. I'm trained as an occupational therapist. Most of the people that I have dealt with both in prison and in um, the works of mercy are people who are vulnerable, who have um, diagnoses or not diagnosed, needs are not properly met, so easy for them to fall through the facts and just become prisoners and victims of our cruel society. Why do you keep uh, making the journey to New York to, to work with them? It's my community. It's my friends, it's my faith, it's, the work is incredible, you know, the, the works of mercy going into the prisons to be with the prisoners is a very tough one, um, but I love the houses of hospitality, you know, just sharing of, of family, being family, it's my extended family. 
Did you, in your time in prison, in federal prison, what was that like for you? What did you learn from that experience? I learned that non-smokers better shut up about people smoking in places they shouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) I I couldn't advocate for myself, my right to have um, air, smoke-free air. You know, it's all contraband. So there's this big dynamic that's immediately set up between prisoners and staff. And I learned, again, you know, just like working um, on the soup line, that, you know, the women are stressed. The women need... uh, a voice. They need compassion. Um, community is everything. We take care of each other. Um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is horrifically corrupt, cruel, and incompetent. <laughs> it has an $84 billion budget, annual budget, that we need to take away from them and apply to housing, education, health care for the prisoners who are in there and their families. You mentioned this would be your last plowshares action. Um, How will you pursue your activism going forward? Oh, I'll continue with my work on the farm in Vermont with my family. I'll continue the work down at Mary House, um, House of Hospitality. Um, I don't know about risking arrest again. Um, Probably I'll be more comfortable with the lower level arrests but you know never say never i don't know what's in store for me i just you know keep my mind and heart open and take care of myself as best i can and i'm 65 years old i don't know there's plenty of work to be done <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good place to leave off um martha hennessy i want to thank you for joining us on the vermont conversation thank you so much david keep up the good work and bless you and amy Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>